takes his show on the road. Hello, and welcome back to Musings on History. Sorry for the delay in bringing you this episode. I've just moved states and changed jobs, and life is life in me right now. As you may or may not know by now, I am your host, Dana, and I recently got banned from the Ancestry.com blog for pointing out that William the Conqueror was not the king who, quote-unquote, made England Anglo-Saxon. He actually ended the rule of the Anglo-Saxon kings and was the first Norman king of England. I figured that would have been obvious considering his title was Duke of Normandy, but I guess the person bragging about being descended from him didn't notice that, and I haven't bothered to file an appeal. But my mother is furious because that was her account, so whatever. Anywho, when I left you last episode... Simon Bolivar was having a hard time getting his Latin American revolution off the ground in Venezuela and New Granada. He had some successes against the Spanish, especially after he linked up with fellow Venezuelan revolutionary Santiago, Santiago de Marino. But the two men weren't able to reach a consensus politically, and ultimately they had to fall back as the Spanish and the royalists continued to hold the center of the country. In this episode... I'll delve more into the politics of this time period, including the central issues of federalism in a 19th century Latin America that is changing very rapidly. On 6 August 1813, Simon Bolivar declared the Second Republic of Venezuela from the capital city of Caracas, but in the city of Cumana, 240 miles to the east, his fellow revolutionary Santiago de Marino did not acknowledge the Caracas-based government, and named himself Chief of the Independent Army of Eastern Venezuela, setting up a separate political entity. Bolivar, of course, could not stand for this division, but at the moment he didn't have the resources necessary or the political clout to press the issue. Although Bolivar held the West, including the corridor leading into New Granada and Marino the East, large swaths of the central part of Venezuela stood between them and in the absence of a powerful central government, several warlord-style caudillos began to form. If you recall back to the Tokugawa episodes, the Sengoku Jedi was characterized by the constant warring of the daimyos, who were essentially the Japanese version of caudillos. Perhaps knowing what Japan went through politically when intense balkanization took hold and seeking to maybe model himself after Tokugawa Ayasu, Bolivar continued to insist that the only way to secure Latin American independence was through a unified Latin American state, which he called Gran Colombia. I should note that Bolivar's vision of Gran Colombia did not include all of Spanish America, and at first not even all of South America. In Brazil, the king of Portugal had been transported to Rio de Janeiro with his court and the assistance of the British Royal Navy. And Bolivar didn't want to upset the British, who he continued to seek out as an official ally by spurring revolution in Portuguese-controlled Brazil. In the more southern viceroyalties of Peru and Rio de la Plata, local revolutionaries were leading their own charges to oust the Spanish, which Bolivar was very happy to see and even more happy to eventually support. In New Spain, men like Manuel Felix Fernandez, more commonly known as Guadalupe Victoria in Mexico, 
Miguel Hidalgo y Castilla and Augustin de Iturbide had also seized on the disruption caused by the Peninsular War and began their own revolt, which later became the Mexican War of Independence. In the Spanish Caribbean, the Napoleonic Wars and the Haitian Revolution saw the diminishing of Spanish influence in the region for a time, with the French and Haitians led by Toussaint Louverture temporarily controlling Santo Domingo under the Peace of Basel, also called the Treaties of Baye, from 1795 to 1803. And the Haitians again asserting control over Santo Domingo under the Haitian president Jean-Pierre Jean Boyer from 1822 to 1843. A note on that. Boyer decided to occupy Santo Domingo at the request of some Dominicans in the eastern part of the country. But in the western and southern regions of Santo Domingo, Dominican revolutionary leaders had sought out the assistance of Bolivar and Gran Colombia to help them oust the Spanish. But as Boyer was able to occupy the Dominican Republic in January 1822 with no military resistance, one could assume that either Bolivar did not want to fight against Haiti, the country that had sheltered him, armed him, and helped him return to Venezuela as a liberator, or... Bolivar and Gran Colombia were too bogged down by domestic issues at the time and may have not had the means to assist or intervene. For all Bolivar's faults as a politician, he doesn't really have a history of being interventionist unless expressly invited. Thus was the geopolitical situation in Spanish America during the Second Venezuelan Republic. On 15 January 1819, Bolivar opened the second National Congress in Angostura, now called Bolivar City, and he was elected president and Francisco Antonio Zea elected vice president. As part of his grand unification scheme, Bolivar then decided to fight with the Neo-Granadans to fully liberate New Granada, then return with the full resources of that viceroyalty to complete the liberation of Venezuela. Bolivar won a stunning and decisive victory at Boyaca in August 1819. Although fighting with royalists would continue for many years, the Battle of Boyaca definitively secured the independence of New Granada and had the added result of weakening Spanish forces throughout South America, which directly contributed to further victories and liberations in Venezuela, Ecuador, and Peru. The Colombian general... Francisco de Paula Santander and Jose Antonio Anzuategui led the Neo-Granadan forces and the Royalists, Colonel Jose Maria Barrero, led the Spanish forces. Bolivar, for his part, was instrumental in helping the Republican forces capture the capital city of Bogota, ordering a flank movement on the Spanish rearguard that caused them to flee once they realized they were surrounded. A key bridge into Bogota was later captured, securing victory for the Republican forces and under the decree of war to the death. Colonel Barrero and 38 of his men were executed for treason. After the battle, Bolivar and Santander returned to Angostura where the National Congress passed a law forming the Greater Republic of Colombia, with Bolivar and Zea serving as president and vice president of the Republic and Santander serving as vice president of the Neo Granada side, with the Venezuelan politician Juan Herman Rocio serving as the vice president of the Venezuelan side. The Spanish general Pablo Maria was still in control of, of Caracas and the coastal highlands, 
And Maria and Bolivar signed two treaties on 25 November 1820, declaring a six-month armistice. After Maria left Venezuela to return to Spain in 1820, leaving Spanish General Miguel de la Torre in charge, Bolivar moved swiftly to drum up support and resources for an outright independence campaign for both Venezuela and Ecuador. These campaigns culminated in a victory at the Second Battle of Carabobo on 24 Jan- uh, June 1821, when Simón Bolívar's forces finally secured the capital of Caracas for good. On 7 September 1821, the Republic of Gran Colombia was established with Bolívar as president and Santander as vice president. The Republic of Gran Colombia was, for a time, the most prestigious and powerful country in the Americas, according to the American president, John Quincy Adams. It was declared by the Congress of Angostura in 1821, and during the Congress of Cucuta, the Constitution of Cucuta was drafted and ratified, formally creating the Republic. At its creation, Gran Colombia was constituted as a unitary state. A unitary state is a system of political organization where most of the governing power resides with the central government. The opposite of this is a federalist system where separate states are united under an overarching political system that allows the states to maintain their own integrity and negotiate all the overarching policies. The United States of America was the most prominent example of a federalist system in Bolivar's lifetime. And while the U.S. system was one he admired, he did not think that it could work in Latin America. Under the colonial system, Spanish Americans had had very little influence on their government beyond local town councils known as cabildos. Participation in these cabildos was limited to the elite landowning criollo class, but ultimate authority rested with the Spanish crown. In addition to this, the African and Amerindian populations of Gran Colombia had lived with few to no rights at all under the colonial system, but they were now free citizens since 1816. Simone Bolivar's opinion of the political realities of Gran Colombia was pretty dim. He said that Spanish America suffered under the triple yoke of ignorance, tyranny, and vice. And thus, in order to establish a republic in a land like Gran Colombia, some concessions would need to be made in terms of liberties. It was for these reasons that Bolivar included provisions in his constitution like lifetime presidency, which is an idea he got from Petion in Haiti. Bolivar's version of tricameralism, which is the practice of having three legislative bodies, included a chamber of tribunes that oversaw government finance, foreign affairs, and war, a hereditary senate that enacted laws, supervised the judiciary, and appointed regional officials, and censors who were elected regionally and acted as a check on the powers of the other two branches, and also held the power of impeachment. Bolivar modeled this system after the British parliamentary system, but his Bolivian system was controversial and ultimately failed in countries like Bolivia, Peru, and Colombia. Interestingly enough, political scientists like Juan Lenz have observed that the decision of many Latin American countries to adopt a federalist system like the United States has led to their tumultuous histories of political instability and subsequent descent into dictatorship or anarchy. So, if Juan Lenz is to be believed, it would seem that while Bolivar's belief that Spanish America was too juvenile-minded, his words, not mine, to function under a federalist system, it was probably steeped in classism and some 
paternalistic racism. I mean, he was a white man from the 1830s. What do you expect? He was somewhat accurate in his assessment of the political situation in the newly independent Spanish Americas. But if adherence to federalism lent itself to anarchy and dictatorship, then what about Bolivar's unitary vision suggested that it would lend itself to egalitarian democracy? Bolivar's answer to this was a clever despotism, again, his words, not mine, an idea born in the Enlightenment and that was actually growing in popularity across Europe. He advocated for a strong executive power able to impose equality where racial inequality prevailed, according to Mexican essayist Carlos Fuentes. He also warned against an aristocracy of rank, employment, and fortune that while referring to liberty and guarantee, it would just be for themselves, but not for leveling with members of lower classes. He is the disciple of Montesquieu in his insistence that institutions have to be adapted to culture. Now, I've already stated my grievances with Montesquieu in a previous episode, but it is worth noting that under the federalist system of the United States, Slavery was allowed to continue in some states while it was ultimately outlawed in others, a situation that was contentious from the very beginnings of the country as Southerners continued to insist that their human property should endow them, the owners, with more and more rights. As the United States began to expand westward, westward, the issue of slave and free states became even more of a political hot-button issue. Under a unitary system, slavery would have either had to be abolished outright or legalized across the entire country. The fact that neither of these things occurred in the formation of the United States directly led to the American Civil War, which is further proof that federalism can and does lead to political instability. However, a distaste for all forms of authoritarianism, ironically excluding corporatized authoritarianism, is deeply ingrained in the Americas and with good reason. So I don't see unitary governments gaining much ground on this side of the Atlantic anytime soon. Tying this back to the two previous generals, since that is the point of this entire series, in his fervent unitarianism, Bolivar was very much the image of Julius Caesar, who also believed that the only way to preserve Rome and prevent it from cannibalizing itself via infighting was to centralize authority under himself. Also, if you haven't noticed yet, I have a bit of an affinity for charismatic despots. I'm not working on it. Caesar literally transformed the meaning of the word dictator, which until he was declared dictator for life, was a rather benign political office rarely used and bestowed upon Roman politicians by the Senate for a one-year term. After Caesar, it took on its more modern meaning, which is more of a tyrant who rules without consensus for life. But it must be said, in the 10 years that Caesar held the reins of power, Rome knew relative peace and prosperity. To say nothing of how his heir Octavian governed Rome and established the famed Pax Romana, building on Caesar's model of governance. The same goes for Tokugawa. The Tokugawa shogunate may have included the violent elimination of all Tokugawa's political rivals, but it also led to 300 years of social stability, artistic development, and economic prosperity in Japan. 
When Simone Bolivar looked across the political landscape of Spanish America, he saw a divided land torn between loyalties to neighbors, the Spanish crown, and the church, as well as a land of people of various ethnic backgrounds who had spent centuries being divided by their racial ancestry for the purposes of maintaining European control over society. While the United States was able to unite against the British and form a government where individual states maintained a semblance of integrity of their own, the United States was also a nation that conducted a whole genocide to rid the land of its indigenous population, and it was a land where the majority of its population had no rights at all and weren't even considered people. And the people that governed all came from the same background and held the same white supremacist ideology. Bolivar had much more inclusive aspirations for Grand Colombia, which meant that in order to achieve his vision, power would need to be primarily in his hands. Now, I don't say this to refute my earlier statement that homogenous societies do not tend towards democracy, only to highlight that homogenous societies are often propped up by inherently non-democratic ideas like racial superiority and cultural genocide. I guess I'm saying all of this to say that if you want something done right, you're probably going to have to do it yourself. Now, having established the political domain of Grand Colombia and enacting its constitution, Bolivar set his sights on his other favorite pastime, pushing the Spaniards out of South America. In present-day Ecuador, the port city of Guayaquil had declared its independence in a quick and bloodless coup that ousted royal authorities, royalist authorities. And Bolivar sent his closest advisor, Antonio de la Sucre, to reinforce the Patriots. When de la Sucre's forces were not enough to turn the royalist tide back, Bolivar reached out to General Jose de San Martin, who had been appointed protector of Peru, and together they liberated Guayaquil. Now, there was pressure from both the Colombian and Peruvian factions to annex Guayaquil, but as Bolivar held the bigger stick, San Martin acquiesced and Guayaquil was annexed by Grand Colombia in July 1822. San Martin and Bolivar agreed on Latin American integration, but they disagreed on what type of government should run this vast, integrated, and newly independent continent. Bolivar wanted, of course, the strong, centralized, unitary republic, while San Martin wanted a constitutional monarchy, believing it would make international recognition easier. In truth, for all his personal convictions and battlefield prowess, Jose de San Martin was no politician. And Bolivar was easily able to make San Martin either see his side of things or back off from enforcing his position. Simone Bolivar, lifelong admirer of Napoleon, definitely exhibited his famous complex. By 1825, Simone Bolivar had ousted Spanish authority from Venezuela, New Granada, Ecuador, and Peru, and had consolidated this vast expanse of South America into a country called Gran Colombia. In August 1825, Upper Peru became La República Bolivia, and now Simón Bolívar became one of the few people in history to have an entire country named after him. However, to liberate a land or many lands is one thing, but to govern them is something else entirely. By 1826, uprisings had begun in Bolívar's native Venezuela, and rumblings of dissent were starting to be heard in New Granada as well. 
Gran Colombia, the dream of the Libertador, was starting to come apart at the scenes, and those that had loved him, fought with him, and named him Liberator were going to turn on Simon Bolivar, and South America would never be the same afterwards. Join me next time for more Music on History.